Mayor Rothschild once said, permit me to issue and control the money of a nation, and I care not who makes its laws. This is what we're talking about in today's inaugural edition of the Panelism Book Club. We're talking Black Monday Murders, Volumes 1 and 2. Welcome to Panelism, the podcast where we talk about the comics and graphic novels worth having on your shelf and more. I am Taylor Trask. I'm Todd A. And this is it, Todd. We're here. It's the Panelism Book Club, which, you know, doesn't isn't too terribly dissimilar from our other book episodes. I should just throw yeah. that out there in case you're like, wait, is this different? It is different in that we're talking about um, two volumes of a series today, and we're going to get really spoilery. Um, yeah, yeah, and, which we've and of done course, from time to time, but this we is have, like, but yeah, this, this is, is a listen to this. We are assuming you've read these books, <laughs> exactly, and we hope you have. We hope that you're you're coming into this having read um, Black Monday Murders, Volume One and Two, the trade paperbacks uh, or graphic novels, uh, and and are ready to discuss. And like we're gonna get, I think, in unlike normal book discussions, we're gonna get even more into the weeds on the themes and sort of the, you know, what the artist and the writer were going for. And just a lot of, I think there'll be a lot of interesting uh, discussions here. I should also mention point of order. I've already talked about uh, volume one on a previous podcast, which you can go find. It was, I think from two years ago, I forget the episode number. Oh crap. I had it. It's like number 62, I think. Yeah. So if you're interested in a, in a sort of spoiler free or, or, or light on spoilers discussion, go back to that episode. But, um, and we're not going to retread a lot of that. If you're wondering like, wouldn't they already talk about this? Yeah, but we're, we're going to go a lot deeper. This is a, uh, this is uh, at that point in time, volume two hadn't come out yet. And oh my God, there is so much that has evolved with this story that um, I just, I can't wait to jump in. So, Oh, you know, that's funny. I hadn't really put that together that when you talked about that, you were still waiting on the next volume and it was yeah. number 64, by the way, 64, um, just to clarify that. So go, but you can go back through the panelism archives, find number 64 black Monday murders. Back but yeah, that's really, that's place. really interesting to think. Oh man. See, I, I, when I, when the whole time we were preparing this, I kept thinking like, Oh, well you've read these, you know, you're just refreshing yourself. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, I reread them and thank goodness I did because I had a different, uh, so, it, so uh, this is, an, I, I've mentioned before, I'm a completist in a lot of ways. <laughs> and in this particular way, I had actually bought, um, every single single issue so far to complete volumes one and two. So I have every individual issue, but because this is such a crazy story and I wanted to make notes and take screenshots and all kinds of stuff, I actually went to Comixology and grabbed the digital volumes one and two. I also did this because I want, A, I love the story. Um, and B, I wanted to, to go through it with, um, uh, I always forget what they call it. Not cover flow, uh, uh guided, uh, a guided view. view. Yeah, I wanted to use Guided View because there was a cinematic kind of quality to the story that I wanted to see how that played in Guided View so that I could, could compare and contrast it to just reading the, you know, the single physical issues. I would say... Man, I'm so glad. Okay, so sorry to interrupt. What oh, would sure, you say? Yeah. Oh, no. I, was gonna say I, I would say, because it usually, always the question is digital or physical, I think the, the experience on digital is great. However, because of the nature of the story, it's a noir kind of detective story, and there's a lot of case files 
that sort of accompany the the panels yeah. like you know yeah. in a traditional hickman style like he'll stop every couple pages and give you like you know do, you know documents from the government or the cia or or you know transcripts of emails or something and and those will pepper in so it does kind of feel like you're reading an actual like you know you you found this in some back room of some police station somewhere and you're just going through it all and in that way the physical issues and even the individual issues i think is probably the optimum way to to consume this book that said the uh, trade paperbacks, digital or physical, have a lot of great Easter eggs and and um, uh, DVD extras at the end. So uh, yeah. for that alone, it's it's probably worth it too. But I would say the physical the physical object is probably a really fun, good way to to digest this. I'm going to give you a counterpoint because Ooh. I have only read the physical. Um, and in fact, the way that this became our first book club choice was I had texted you and said, "Oh, I just picked up Black Monday Murders in a used bookstore." Um, and then we started chatting about, oh, we should revisit that, you know, maybe go into volume two. Um, so for me, you are, you're completely correct. The like noir setting of this really translates, especially with this artist, uh, that we'll get into really the physical artifact is wonderful, but mm -hmm. there is so much and freaking information crammed into panels <laughs> that I think I would have enjoyed the guided view oh, more and then and then this is a weird piece of feedback is that one of the reasons it took me uh, a couple of starts to get into this is because i'm a new glasses wearer and this was a book that you know my my glasses are like for reading and uh uh i don't wear them all the time for reading i'm not one of the it's not like i just put them on automatically but this was one where i could not decipher it without my glasses <laughs> Oh, so I had to like carve out time like in a well-lit room, you know, to put the glasses on and like go through this. It wasn't mm -hmm. like, oh, I can just pick it up and flip flip in anytime, you know. It's like, I, no, I can't see it. Yeah, um, yeah. And there just there was so much packed in that, yeah, I was really missing the guided view. And, and probably because the last few books I've read have been on comiXology. And so, yeah, that's good to well, note. Let's uh, let's kick this off in a, a different sort of way um, because it's a book club episode. I want to I want to take a tradition I I uh, learned from the Escape Velocity Book Club, um, which is monthly here in Colorado Springs. They they kick off every club by asking a sort of thematic question related to the book that we are discussing. And I love that. I was like, let's Ooh. just do that. Let's do that here. So my question tonight uh, is: What is the craziest conspiracy theory you give some validity to? And this is a book of, you know, full of conspiracy and, and we'll touch on that in a little bit, but I just, I guess, you know, of, of all the crazy ones, cause there's, there's actual legitimate real conspiracy theories and they're usually more of the boring ones, but like, what's, what crazy one are you like, you know, there might be something to that. Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> no judgment, by the way, difficult you to discuss in our current environment, politically oh. and culturally. Uh, because there was, I, I, you know, I'm just be honest with you. Like five years ago, I really thought, um, that I was just really, in, I thought it was just so entertaining, I guess, to, to dive into the conspiracy theory world and marvel at the people who, you know, <laughs> believed those things, whether it was flat earth or something else. Um, and at, since 2016, uh, around about November 9th, I've thought <laughs> this is way too serious. Um, and then I also don't know about that thing of like, you know, 
we tend to use conspiracy theory in a way that means um, uh, that that presupposes that it's a bullshit subject, right? That's a great point because yeah, we've we've totally twisted the word. Like the original intention of the words conspiracy theory are people get together to conspire to do something. So it's, like you, you and I talking before the, the podcast began, we were conspiring and you could say, <laughs> Oh, I have a theory about that. Cons that conspiracy. But yeah, it's, it's almost like become now just like, it's become like a, a catch all phrase for just like wackadoo fringe ideas. And, and um, the people who believe those fringes, uh, believe it in a way that does not actually follow the scientific method of like what a theory is. You know what I mean? Like they're, yeah. they're, their proof of the theory being true is that they've gathered all this, like, you know, evidence that's not really correlated. <laughs> true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I have, I have two answers to this question. Well, you, I, I have one, you don't. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> Which is uh, the, the craziest conspiracy theory that I give validity to is this crazy conspiracy theory that, um, a, a, God, I'm like afraid to say it. Oh, come but on. But it's like that that a a a authoritarian uh, nation um <laughs> conspired with <laughs> someone who uh recently was elected to an office and oh, um there you go. Uh, you know, like I think it's a conspiracy theory in the technical sense, but like you'll start looking at the financials of it all and it's like, "Oh my god, this is it's a real terrifying thing, right?" Well, I'll give you uh, two. Um, a yeah. current one and a very old one. The current one is Jeffrey Epstein. That I just I oh. the more <laughs> more I look at that, I'm like, my God, this is people conspired to conceal his true identity, his true whatever he was was not what the public sort of thing was. And oh, the more, wait. You're, the more that's you're not even focusing on the death of it. You're saying like Everything there was a it. conspiracy theory that kept him above the law kind of thing. I, I I think, and this is highly, highly, entirely subjective, but with some good, some good res evidence, I think he was an uh, asset or an agent of a federal agency, CIA, FBI, NSA, one of those things, and was used to basically create, to, to gain leverage over important people for those, for one of those agencies. And, you know, took it too far. Maybe he was like a loose asset. Like he was, he was given a role or given a position and given money and then sort of, just sort of, you know, went too far off the leash. I don't, I don't know. That's, mm. I would say Epstein, well, that, but my other, my favorite one. That is a conspiracy. One, my favorite one is John F. Kennedy's father. And if you don't know anything about this, just go Google. Oh, what's his, what's his, his, his name? John F. Kennedy. What's, I should, it's not Jack. It's a, uh, it's uh, uh, Joseph. Look yeah. up Joseph Kennedy Sr. and just see where that rabbit hole takes you. I mean, you're going to find all kinds of stuff, but the one thing that really drives me drives me nuts is he had a lot of ties to the mob. His sons were heavily, you know, heavily involved in politics, and it's there's a lot of speculation that he intentionally gave his daughter a lobotomy. And there there's just there's a she was going to either out out him or or create trouble for the family because she had a lobotomy all of a sudden. I mean, that, that is true. She did have a lobotomy, but it was like the why is, is always sort of haunting me. Like what really went on with that family? Like, what was that about? So that's, that's my classic one that I'm always like, I don't know, man. And that you, you can take that off into all kinds of rabbit holes. You, uh, um, 
you did re remind me of my actual favorite conspiracy theory. Although in this case, I don't know that conspiracy actually works, but it's my favorite like a wackadoo theory mm -hmm. that I give some validity to. <laughs> and just saying that is going to make oh, you no. laugh so much. Do it. Uh, you can totally Google this. Uh, Stevie Wonder is not blind. <laughs> oh, that's a great one. The oh. Deadspin, some blog on Deadspin did a post on this a few years ago, and I died laughing at so many points during it. And it was one of those things that like tweaked that little part of your brain where you start going like, wait, like there's a, there's a gif of, um, uh, at this performance with a whole bunch of singers where someone knocks into a mic stand and yeah. Stevie catches it just like flawlessly. Mm. And you're like, bruh. <laughs> so you start seeing those images and your your brain starts doing that weird thing of like, I don't know, man. <laughs> he was one with the force and the force is with yeah, him. A truther. Yeah. Yeah. A, That's a great a, one. A I love that one because it's it's just like it's it's a completely innocent one because it's, it's yes, that's yes, not hurting yes. anybody. But you're just like, huh? Like it just I mean, it's one of those things where you hear it, you're like, really? And then you start to kind of wonder, you're like, well, maybe. But then like, what does he have to gain from that? Like all these years, like he's not like in the prestige where he's got this long con magic trick that he's playing. Like at any time, he could have been like, hey, my my sight isn't so bad. <laughs> but he just it's like. 60 years later, he's still, or 50 yeah. years later, he's still yeah. doing his thing. Well, and that's, that's, you know, that totally contrasts with what we're about to discuss, the Black Monday murders, which is that's right. That's <laughs> not right. funny. That's right. Not at all. Well, I mean, there's a couple, I guess, I you know, black comedy kind of moments, but for the most part, no, it's pretty serious. Let's jump in. Um, the Black Monday murders is written by Jonathan Hickman and uh, with art by Tom Cocker or Coker. I, to, I had this problem I'd on the last that podcast. Coker. I'm going to say Coker because it's just, it's more comfortable. So Tom, I apologize again uh, in case this uh, is mispronouncing it. And then again, published by image. Um, so just a killer team. Um, and Jonathan Hickman, man, he, all, I, I'm impressed that he always finds interesting artists for his, his self-published stuff. And it's always the perfect person for that particular project, you know, East of West, he's got Nick Dragata, um, uh, this, he's got Tom and we can go, you can go on and on, but just, I love that Tom, that, that Hickman just kind of works with all these different talents and really everybody brings a different flavor to his work. Um, I'm going to read a quick summary taken right from good old Wikipedia. Uh, this series takes place in the aftermath of black Monday, the stock market crash of 1987. That's an important year to remember in this story, by the way. If you've read it, 1987 keeps coming back around again. The story concerns a group of elite financiers who have made a blood pact with a god in exchange for power and wealth. A second narrative strand follows NYC detective Theodore Dumas as he unravels the secrets at the heart of the global financial market. According to Hickman, this is a book about schools of magic. The only difference being that instead of schools of magic, um, it's financial institutions. Powers accumulated through wealth. It's about a bunch of guys, a bunch of schools that gathered together and generated a financial collapse in order to attain power. I think he's actually sort of underselling how sort of crazy and 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 just weird yeah. and dark this thing is. That's not that sounds well, almost like an after school club. Like this is definitely not that. This is and it, it's so funny. And so it's good that this is like a spoiler filled discussion because. Uh, first of all, you, there was no other place for you to pull that description from. Like, exactly. I mean, may, maybe that's on the image comics website, but it's definitely not on the book. This yeah. is not one, you know, there's no summary on the back. And, uh, 
I don't think if there were, I don't think that it would specifically say that about the blood pact with a God because, um, and, uh, and I think it's just difficult to talk about because I assume in our episode number 64, um, where you talked about volume one, you were probably trying not to spoil it. Yeah. Um, and, but, but even if you weren't, I don't know that that's like the, what you would lead with. You would have talked about, and you did talk about like, these are the actual moneyed families in America at the time of the stock market collapse. And this is sort of an alternate history, but it has to do with conspiracy theories and like black magic. And, you know, you you don't think of those things as literal, I guess, in a lot of ways. And this, even at the beginning, there's a quote from like something like there is no, no God, but mammon or something like that. in one of the chapter divides. And, um, uh, I didn't take it literally. I, I mm-hmm. thought like, oh, this is another like, you know, quote from some, you know, uh, whatever arcane, not, you know, book or text or something. But, I, you know, and then it's like, oh, no, no, no. They, they're, this is a literal blood pact with a god. It's a literal uh, blood pact. And it's it's like, um, well, let's real quick. So so Mammon or Mammon uh, is that god. And just in case you're like, well, what is that? Was that invented for this? It's it's a New Testament Bible thing, commonly thought to mean money, material wealth, or an, an entity that promises wealth and is associated with the greedy pursuit of gain. So there's historical sort of mythological precedent for it. But they put Mammon right on the cover of issue number five. So if you're like, oh. wait, is he in this? He's in it. And his... his uh, you're looking for like the the weird kind of creature with um like a, a uh, like steer skull or some kind of like you know, cattle skull and he's wearing like a suit and he's sitting in a chair. That's Mammon. That's him. And they eventually, I don't even have to say spoilers because we know it's spoilers. But eventually, in issue two, uh, volume two, they show him and they show everything about it. So it's like they don't. It, the whole point of this series, which I love, this is not. To just sort of like slow dribble. Who's Mammon? Maybe it's a person. Maybe right, it's a code right, word. Right. No, no, no. It's a real fucking god. It's a real demonic entity that has infiltrated every level of finance in the world and has has kind of created this power structure. Well, um, let me pick up on something you said there because um, you're right. It's like he is manifest right away as yeah. a real thing. And there was there's something even in, and though that happens in volume two, there's something even in volume one about the the like the just content of the story. Um, because I, I know I've read a couple of things from Hickman, but the only one I could relate it to was East of West. Mm-hmm. And um to me East of West was like this, you know, really interesting like alternate history world that had been created, but I ke- as I kept reading it, I, it wasn't going anywhere for me. Like I thought it was beautifully created. And then I'm like, yeah, but what's the actual hook here? Because so much stuff was like wild. Mm. And, you know, it's like even when you meet the the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you're just like, well, yeah, I mean, of course they're there. You know, it didn't. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this had a had a totally different texture to it because it's it's very rooted in like, you know, a pulp noir kind of setting of. Mm you know, a, a hard boiled detective story yeah, and it's, you know, yeah. it's actual events and it's, you know, the, the stock market crash of 1929 and then black Monday of 1987. And you know, uh, what's going to happen in 2016. Although that's, that's another timeline in this, but um, I, I guess that reality to it uh, really hooked me in a way that East of West did not. Mm, so, which is interesting yeah. because it was the, uh, it was the, 
kind of alternate history reality that hooked me to East of West. Um, I mentioned on previous podcasts to you that like the, uh, the East of West of the world was yeah, the one yeah. shot that came out. That I was like, what is a, the title was interesting. I'm like, what is this? And the, the world issue breaks down like sort of all the different territories and how that happened. I was just like, this is fascinating. And then the fact yeah, that yeah. they took, uh, you know, the American Indians and, and like twisted their, you know, their path to be instead of, instead of warring with each other and then getting subsumed, they all, created a super nation and then got really super into technology. I was like, that's interesting. So just, yeah. it's all of that. Like, what if well, that it really was, hooked me into what, uh, East of West? Honestly, that's what was unexpected about this mm. because I, I was hooked into that whole crazy alternate history and mythology in East of West. Yeah. So, you know, when I was flipping through the, uh, trying to get into the first few pages of this, I was like, Oh boy, it's a lot of bankers and suits and stuff. And, <laughs> yeah, but you know, the, it was like, but then the, the first, but wait, didn't the first issue, I mean, talk about oh, yeah, a hook. Yeah. Like the first issue opens up with the stock crash of 29 and right out of the gate, you get to see how bonkers and just, you know, occulty and just crazy this entire thing is. Like it really sets up the, Very true. how far he's going to go. Did, I mean, didn't that like make you a wave? Whoa, whoa. Well, huh. I, I guess what it is, is this, the stakes are a little bit smaller because at the end, uh, well, not, I mean, it's relative, but at the end of East of West, your, you know, volume one, you've already met like that, that whole Chinese nation and oh, like there's yeah. a whole army involved and you know, there's the literal personification of death and then the four horsemen. It's like, Oh my God, this is like, you've, you, this is already so apocalyptic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how do we, you know, how do we relate? I guess, whereas mm -hmm. this felt, uh, <laughs> I guess relatable or accessible in some way where I was like, I don't know. I was just, I just, I was, I was really hooked by Hickman writing something that was like, um, just that literal and like based in our own current reality. He would so, okay. Yeah. You that said, and what a perfect segue. You would absolutely love the nightly news if you haven't read it yet, because that you know what the, I have not. That's oh my god. Point. Being being Hickman's very first title, it I mean it looks like you know one of his opuses. Like it's just it's so perfect. He he illustrated and wrote it. Um, but just like nightly news is very very similar in that it deals with conspiracy, but it also deals with just this very earnest real world where this like crazy thing is happening that one doesn't have any kind of occult sort of sensibility to it mm, okay. um but it's very much about here's my pitch for nightly news what would happen if a group of of sort of you know sovereign citizen kind of guys who are just sick of the system decided to start uh, killing off journalists public like live on tv and just without any you know only journalists only news anchors just kill them all like that's what begins the nightly news you're like holy crap and then it just it, it delves into that so you might that said, you might really like that. If, if you like, this is the first book since Nightly News that reminds me, it, it feels almost like kind of a spiritual successor to it. Um, oh, and just okay. that it plays in these, it plays in this very contemporary contextual world that is very, you know, is, is our world, but he just twists it just slightly, you know, into this other realm of like, well, this could be interesting. You know, he, Hickman hmm. and Conspiracy are, they kind of go hand in hand. Like he's got the Nightly News, Manhattan Project, Dying in the Dead, East of West, we mentioned X-Men, New Avengers um, book, which I've talked about before yep. too, that all those, all those books, um, it's Hickman really likes playing with the idea of conspiracy and, and like, you know, th these groups of men and women are these, just these kind of groups of kind of gods, you know, among men sort of deciding the fate of everybody else. Like he's really interested in that. He's also interested in this. You saw it here, but he this this is one of those books that really utilizes heavily his interest in this. I'll call it the white character. There's yeah. always in a lot of his books just a mysterious, 
white character. And by white, I mean like all white, like hair, clothes, skin, the, the, everything. Just They're all white. Um, you know, it popped up, I think, for the first time in Red Mass for Mars. I may be wrong about that, but I think that's right. And it's popped up in Dying in the Dead. It's popped up in East to West. In East to West, it actually represents death. Um, in New Avengers, it represents death. So I think well, in, the, and in this case point here, out your, your most recent favorite, which this one just like blows your mind when you find out that um, Magneto is all yeah. white. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that still hasn't been kind of explained yet. I'm guessing at some point in the in the regular X-Men run, they'll they'll come back to that because they haven't well, really talked about how he's just randomly changed his costume to all white for some reason. Is that specifically in House of X? It continued no, but the... it's it's continued on. So like in the, oh, okay. in his X-Men run, he's running. It's just it's exactly the events of House of X continued on, and Magneto is is all well, in white. Some nerd can correct me, but I'm pretty sure that in House of M, Magneto kills all the mutants. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So he may have something in plan, but in this book, there's the white character who's probably the most similar to um, his sort of immortal death characters and dying in the dead. Um, lot, lot reminds me a lot of that. But in this case, it's it is just a silent, you know, stylish kind of woman who is, yeah. you know, she's and she's. Uh, they show her in 1929. They show her now, so she's kind of like always there with oh, yeah. whatever family's in power, you know, and she's just kind of like their avatar. Or their, their, I think they call her their familiar. Um, and yeah, yeah, they do. And one of my favorite things is in the, there's a family tree graphic yeah. that has the familiars on it um, where there's like the family is represented in, in black figurines on the right. And then the familiars are named through the ages. Like there's Abigail and then Abrielle and then Abby. Oh, that's right. I, mean, I forgot about that. I yeah. Like and it's, it, it was one of those things where I didn't, you know, it took me a minute. I was like looking at the family tree, like, I don't, what are they saying here? You know, why, why is this in, in white over here? And then of course flip the page and it's like, Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So he, Hickman loves those characters. And I, I have this sort of pet theory I've talked about before where I think that white character is his dark tower. He's going to have some book that eventually unifies every one of his yeah. stories in some way. And the white character is going to be crucial to that. I mean, I, I think, I mean, why not? He's, he's really, it, it's a signature of his. Like, it would be interesting to see, like, how he envisions that character in all his work. So well, in here, it's it's definitely a, a focal point. And ever since you pointed it out to me, I I love the idea that there's, even if he doesn't have, and when, which I bet he does have a unifying theory, but even if he doesn't, the idea that there's like a Hickman lore that kind of yeah. like <laughs> sort of bleeds into each of his works where yeah. you, you know, on like on a meta level, you're like, you're, you're analyzing this like we're just doing right now. You're analyzing it and comparing it to X-Men. Like yeah. that doesn't make any yeah. sense, you know, no. but yeah. the authors put this thing in that's, that's making you do that, which is, yeah, I love another thing that, you know, we should point out, I think right now is that, uh, it, it draws on all of his love of graphic design yes. and, um, you know, uh, what else do I want to say? Uh, languages and, and everything is this symbology, this like language of icons or symbols that he's created for this book, which is just fascinating to me. He does you know? that a lot too. He did yeah. that in House of X. He's done that. Uh, oh, really? He, he, well, yeah, yeah. There's a the way the mutants the mutants kind of have a special language that they share with um, oh, Krakoa, and so it's like it's oh, it, it's a lot okay. like this. It's kind of that, but in this, it, it's it's interesting because they the way they design the sort of the yeah. you know, mammon speak, I guess, if you will, like it's it's very it looks demonic. You know, just it's kind of these weird kind of occult symbols. And every time I see, I, I, do you do you hear a sound in your head when you read those? <laughs> I because, don't. 
I always hear this kind of like it's, oh I kind of have this like kind of gross, just sort of like like almost d- unhuman kind of distorted sound every time I see that. Um, and sometimes too, when you see it, like you know somebody, you'll hear somebody's real thoughts or the you know the yeah. English translation. But I just imagine it's this kind of like you know, like you can't even <laughs> you couldn't even say it if you wanted to. It just has to be sort of expressed in this well, in this way. I, and I guess it's the way that this is. So when we've seen it before and, you know, I, I guess I've probably seen it in like Superman books too, like, uh, you know, Kryptonish or whatever they speak on Krypton oh, yeah. is, is like written in, you know, a bunch of symbols or, you know, very much looks like hieroglyphs or something. What I guess is interesting in this is that it is a spoken language and a written language and it seems to like be almost like a map or something you know it's like yeah, every time i yeah. look at it i sort of see something different i'm like oh, okay and and it it translates to everything you know when he draw when they we have these great graphics of like the seats of power i can't remember what that's called those sort of four seats you know and mm-hmm. each one of them is represented by a symbol and then you know we find it on the wall after the black monday murder that they're investigating and it's yeah. on people you know carved or bled onto people's chests or something and or yeah it's just like it's everywhere um, in a way that maybe I haven't seen the symbolic language used before in, in comic a, books. There's a scene between Theo and Professor, uh, uh, God, what's his last name? Professor Gaddis or Dr. Gaddis. Um, there's a, there's a scene when he first meets him at his, at, I think it's in book one or volume one where he meets him at his office and he actually pulls out a, a book that has yeah. that symbol on it. And the, and Dr. Uh, Gaddis goes, I see that here, like in my book, this symbol, it's the letter F and, Theo yeah. goes, wait, you can actually read this? He goes, of course not. And there's no record of that anyone who can. At best, we have a partial understanding of a few symbols. So it's like even, you know, even somebody scholarly who's been kind of obsessed with this doesn't even know what it is or you know, just the, the letter or the word F. Like, and, okay. and then he adds in that extra dimension of which I thought this was a great touch. He said, you know, of like we saw it in this manuscript and then we saw it in this other manuscript dis- discovered across the world. So we know it's older than both of them. What we need is <laughs> um, the uh, uh, oh, my God, it just slipped out of my mind. The Rosetta Stone of this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, in order to translate it. And it was like, oh, perfect. You know, it, it sort yeah. of like gave me like a MacGuffin. Like, I wonder if Theo's going to find that Rosetta Stone. You know, Oh, that's a great. I never thought about that being a, a key part of the volume three. It also reminds me a lot of um, the movie Arrival, like the way the, um, oh, great. the aliens great. had yeah. this kind of like the squid ink language that was you know a word, but it, it had all this different context and meaning that she, it eventually changed her brain to understand it. And, and there's other story implications for that too, but it kind of had that same feeling. Like, I wonder like if you, if your mind is exposed or open to the meaning of this, of these, the symbology, if that, you know, changes who you are, you know, wow. you'll notice some of the, some, well, all the individuals who are part of these schools of economics, these families, um, you know, once they're in, they are resistant. You know, you can't kill them with bullets. You know, you have to, it has to be a silver bullet. Like they sort of, they, they become almost like occult creatures onto themselves. Mm. And I'm wondering if that doesn't open their minds more to the language, if the language isn't part of that, that transition. Interesting. Yeah. And it also made me as I was going through this, um, because he does a really great job in this of uh, mixing up, you know, the real and the sort of like imagined in a way like even boy, it's hard to talk about this, but it made me wonder, like, uh, how much of the occult stuff in this was actually real and Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about Crowley or like Madame Blavatsky or something and the, 
you know, quote, esoteric writings of them. Like, you know, I'm, I'm almost I, like as I was reading it, I just kept going like, I wonder if Hickman based this on a real sort of language of symbols that was used by, you know, like <laughs> by those people practicing the left hand path or, it, you know, like you what know, is what going gonna, on here? We're going to find out, I think, at some point that Hickman like some of this stuff is actually real and Hickman just figured it out, you know, or found something that he's just like slowly putting in all these, in all these books. Like it just that more than any of his other creations, this book gave me this unsettling feeling all the way through that. I'm like, does he know something we don't? And that's probably by design. It's probably like, we'll make it just, you know, obviously yeah. it's, it is a crazy sort of story, but it's like, there's so many little touches that are like, did, could this have actually happened? You know, could is there some element that that he heard or knows about firsthand that he sort of integrates? And even take away the magical stuff, just like you know, families killing other families to to take their power and their money away from. Like, how often does that happen? Like, it's just it's he brings yeah. up so many interesting questions that just it does that thing that good conspiracy theories do, just tickles tickles your fancy just enough to go. I wonder, I wonder how much of this is true, and just you know, causes you to think about the world in a different. Yeah. Or not even like, you know, in that way of like, we're playing with the truth in that, uh, there can be a fact like the, the (laughs) fact that was, um, we, we hilariously discussed on our, our comics group text, uh, the, you know, the fact that the streets of Washington, DC, um, seem to be laid out in a pentagram. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But it's not that that's the purpose of it, you know, or a meaning behind it it's what our brains start giving meaning to. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's also playing with all that too. sort of, you know, uh, uh, false meaning, I guess, well, or attributed humans, meaning. Human being, like, it, I mean, um, human beings are always like, we, we just crave story and we crave fantasy so much. I mean, if, if just look at any, every, any media business, like, I mean, trillions of dollars every year spent to make movies and books and TV shows and just games and comics. And we, we want, we need fantasy. We need story in our lives. And so it's, you know, you take these things that are just happy coincidences and it's so easy to just be like, look, there's hidden meaning here too. And sometimes right. there might be, but a lot of times it's just our, our craving to add meaning and context and fant- yeah. fantasy into things that are mundane. Um, right, right. And there's nothing more mundane than money, right? It's like, what a, but then you start oh, thinking about money and you start, you start looking at like the way the dollar bill is constructed and there's just so much symbolism built in. And, you know, you could say, well, a lot of that was just, you know, the people who created currency wanted to have their signature on it. And so exactly. they, but you know, some of the, some of the imagery is like, wait, why is this on our money? And you just kind of think like everybody uses money. Everybody sees it. Um, let's, you know, let's jump into that. Cause they're, the themes of this book, like money's money is the physical manifestation of power. That's probably the the number one, I think, core idea here is that money yeah. is the way the world functions and not just from a, a, a position of influence, but like physically taking resources out of the ground, like silver and gold and, and these things and crafting money. Like that's an act and people die doing that, you know, um, and people, you, you know, <laughs> entire systems of, of society can be transformed by just that physical act. And so then to take that and say, hey, there's there's actual magic to this. There's actually like more more power than just, you know, the, the, the repercussions of buying and selling. Like, there's something here to that, which is, you know, I, it makes you, you kind of go out into the world and go, okay, like every time I use cash, what is, what is actually happening? Am I, am I participating in a chaos magic ri- you know, ritual that's, that's strengthening <laughs> some, some, you, you just, I mean, these are interesting questions to ask when, when money is like really put forward in a story to be that, 
you know, have that much meaning and it, and should it have that much meaning? You know, like we went from, a, you know, bartering society to this having this like currency, this stuff that you know, follows us around everywhere. It was, was that interesting to you? Oh yeah. And you touched on just two of the things you said, touched on two of my favorite lines. One was, uh, um, uh, Victor, um, uh, sorry, I forgot the last name, but when, he, when he, yeah, when he gives the guest lecture to the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to the like financial students, he talks about money being power. Um, and then he later, when he's talking to, uh, another person whose name I cannot remember, um, Alexi, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, Oh, oh no, it's Alexi who says, you know, my students, they just think, you know, money's going to fall out of the sky when in fact it has to be pulled from the earth, mm-hmm. you know? And it was like, Oh my God, this is all like a very, like you point out a very real thing, um, that we've also given an esoteric quality to, you know? Yeah. Later our- on, later on when they meet Mammon and in, in volume two, um, Mammon actually says like, look, all the other gods fell because mankind is fickle and man, like mankind continues to you know, put its attention on different stuff. So like, of course all those other gods would, would come and go, but money, like man needs money. And I made sure that man needs money. And, and that, that's that worship of that thing keeps me as like the only game in town. I was just like, Oh God, it just the morality <laughs> lesson that's attached to that is really it's just really, it kind of stings at the at a base level. It's like, oh my God, yeah. are we, are we doing that? Like, again, it's that, it's that, it's that open-ended question that just invites conspiratorial thinking that I love. Um, the occult really makes a huge, huge, you know, has a huge presence in this book and, and increasingly so as, you know, it starts off as this, as this bonkers, but very sort of nice little noir story of, you know, kind of a whodunit. And then quickly manifests into just this, this, very, you know, it reminded me a lot of the movie The Ninth Gate, that Johnny Depp movie that um, oh. Roman Polanski directed. And say what you will about about that, but I just, I've loved, I've always loved that movie, and it's it's for a number of reasons, but it's it is it is a detective story as well. It's Johnny Depp's character is going around the world trying to uh, figure out if this book that Frank Langella gives him is legitimate or not. So he goes to different countries and tries to compare copies. All the meanwhile, getting getting sucked into this sort of satanic ritual that he, you know, is, is kind of apparent, but is also like, he doesn't realize it's happening until the very end. It just kind of has this, it's, it's this wonderful merging of the occult and, and, a, and a just tried and true detective story. And in this case, it's the same thing. It's like a whodunit. And as Theo gets pulled further in and he meets all these people, like he gets immersed in this world to where that's the, that's the story is this world and these, these crazy people who've made it. So unless, you know, eventually, as you know, maybe you don't, you have not read volume two yet. Have you? Can we talk about that? Yeah, yeah. Way to bust yeah. me on that. Well, I'm gonna bust one because I don't. <laughs> if in case it may get awkward if I mention something, or if you're like you know trying, but you don't, you don't, you don't care. Like you're, you're fine if I spoil this. Of but course. in in volume two, like very quickly, well, not very quickly, but they find out who you know. We the reader know who killed um, um, uh, Daniel Rothschild, but like he he finds out very definitively. And so that isn't the point of the story anymore, which is great because if this was just a, a big murder mystery for three volumes. It would have been very boring, especially with all the other set dressing. So it shifts from, from like who, who did it to like, what is Theo going to do in this world? As, as he finds out more about it, he becomes, you know, his story merges in with the family stories and the, the schools of, of finance stories and it becomes one thing. And so it's just, it's this idea of the occult, like, you know, the occult as, 
you know, American policy as global financial policy. There's just that's there's something really unsettling about that too. But then it also just, I mean, it's easy to to think, you know, when the Bilderberg group gets together, maybe they're not doing witch magic, but they're still they're still operating at a level that's not, you know, we're not involved in those conversations. It's just who knows what there's a mystery to that. There's a sort of not a sinister element, but maybe. And so the occult is kind of almost like a stand-in for like what we experience in the real world anyway, with just these these titans of industry and finance kind of meeting and, and manipulating and, and making decisions for the rest of us. Yeah, totally. Um, I, yeah. <laughs> Boy. It's just interesting I, that, that Hickman finds that. I, I, I love Hickman's fascination with that. Because he could, you know, he could write books about anybody. He seems to kind of continue to come back to, you know, conspiracy, to the occult, to death, to like these systems. And he's all about systems and trying to subvert those systems or show yeah. them in the show these systems in their worst light, right? So that we yeah. maybe can make better decisions. And I think I think it's in your episode with um with Frank Fry a couple of weeks ago when you were talking about East of West. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure you will. Uh, I think you made the comment like um, Hickman sort of like. Stephen King, he he sort of gets like a theme in his head and he just like, it's like a dog with a bone kind of deal. Yeah. Like, yeah. So I, there's also that meta appreciation of like watching him explore systems of power and how religion or the occult or something influences those like through his other works, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the idea? I mean, another theme he plays with a lot in this series is family legacies and nepotism, which I mean, in today's political climate, it's even more important than ever. But it's just yeah. like, does that, does that, was that interesting to you? Does that fit in yeah, nicely with the other story he's trying to tell? I, I, honestly, that's the, that, I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the parts that I had the most, uh, just, um, I, I just don't understand nepotism or, uh, you know, uh, the divine right of kings kind of thing at all. <laughs> um, so it, it does play into the occult side of it, mm-hmm. but, um, it, it, if anything, you know, sort of took a little, took me a little bit out of the moment. It was that thing of like, oh man, I, I don't, I don't know that there's a good reasoning for why it's always these families in, in power. Uh, I mean, I understand how families consolidate power, but it always seems like, uh, you know, at some point someone in that line is not going to be as, uh, adept at <laughs> controlling the power as the next one. So, um, you- the other... Oh, did well, you get confused at all? Um, because they kept one, oh, my geez. one my one problem with the story was that there's a lot of like brothers and sisters and fathers and cousins and stuff that get referenced yeah. and then you never see them or when you do see them you're like okay now who's because there's the families and then there's the schools that they're connected to but the school names don't necessarily match their names and so just it's keeping that together was really tricky for me. Yeah, um, I for sure got confused with that. Uh, and am I wrong? Are there a couple of characters that I know a lot of people are identified with first and middle names in some, mm-hmm. like in some writing, but am I wrong that it seemed like at one point, um, uh, Gregoria's brother was sort of referred to by a couple of different names and maybe I'm, maybe I'm falling for that and I'm confusing two different characters. Oh man. Um, <sighs> I'd say it's nit nitpicking, you know? Um, but I, but I did want to point out, like, especially when you talk about the family, the other thing, the other sort of point of reference that kept coming up is this excellent HBO series called succession. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think about all those wow. things about family in that as well, because it's really interesting in that, like where the first couple of episodes, you're at least 
I mean, you, you see the flaws, but you're led to believe that one of these children is definitely more competent than the others. And it doesn't sort of make sense why the others would even compete to run the family company because they're not involved in it. You know, they don't, there's like, they're basically, there's a son that's like, he's, you know, he's worked for the company forever. Uh, you know, he's like, why is this not the first in the succession line? And then by season two, it's, it's just totally bonkers. But that was running through my head too, of like, there is a lot of reality to like big financial families operating as though they have a divine right of Kings kind of thing. I like the succession comparison um, because they're, uh, I always call him Adrian. It's the, the Adrian from Ferris Bueller, the oldest son in succession. I forget, <laughs> I forget the the actor's name. He's been in other stuff too. Wait, he's not Adrian. Adrian and Ferris Bueller. He's Cameron. Cameron. Sorry. Not what, what, what Adrian come from? Yeah. Cameron. Sorry. Cameron. Um, but he's like, he's, he's that cliche character that, you know, first born, but doesn't want any part of it really. Um, you know, get sucked in a little bit here and there, but he just, he's, he's kind of, he's like, no, I'm going to live a different life. And there's definitely a character or two in black Monday murders, specifically Win Ackerman, who you see, you hear, you know, they hint about him, they talk about him, but you never really see him. You see his email exchanges with Daniel, um, before Daniel dies and you, you know, just, you, you kind of see all this stuff, but you never really see him. And then you get the sense that like, maybe he got out maybe. And, and then at the very end of volume two, you find out what happened to him, but <laughs> it's, it's kind of that same sort of care. I just like that they included that twist too. Cause that's a very common, not, I don't want to say trope. I mean, a lot of families have kids that are like, look, I don't want this. I'm not right, I'm right. forging my own thing. Like, or, or you guys are all a bunch of immoral assholes. Like I'm going to go over here. I don't want this. This is yeah. ruining things. Hey, while, while I'm thinking about it, what did you think about, there's a lot of documents, like I mentioned earlier, um, emails and case files and all kinds of things. And a lot of it is redacted. Uh, oh, did I that, love that. You did love that. Okay. I don't know if that got distracting after a while. Cause some of it was just like, Jesus Christ, how much more and when are we going to know? And sometimes yeah. some of those things do get revealed, but a lot of it doesn't. And, and maybe some of it's just not consequential, but it's just, it was interesting that there was a lot of redacted stuff. Well, there's, there's just this great scene in the first volume um, where there's a transcript of Victor and the attorney that the company has sent to represent him yeah. and a whole bunch of stuff is redacted in that. And then what's just beautiful about that, that I also, I don't recall I've ever seen in a comic is the next illustrated panel picks up right at that moment yeah. as though the, the police taped this. That was the other thing that was on my mind is like, who has this document? Did, yeah. The, yeah, did yeah. the police privately record an attorney client, uh, discussion, you know, and then they had to redact it because it was like, Hey, that's, you know, <laughs> kind of shows how far over the line we stepped. Um, but I really, I just really love that device of like, you're reading all this and then boom, you're right at it. It, it wasn't, um, a PDPedia kind of thing where yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. here's an, yeah. here's some extra stuff that will inform the world, but doesn't really make sense right now. You know, this was like, no, yeah. this really impacts you. That particular transcript, it's funny that you mentioned that one because I was literally looking at that exact transcript as you were talking. That, um, that one's good because it points, he do, uh, Hickman does this thing periodically and in that transcript he does it where the redacted parts leave certain words unredacted and then right. they spell like, in this case, there's like an entire paragraph of, of Victor 
uh, Urseco or Oresco talking, and you only see, and it's all blacked out except for the words "You will never understand what I f- really am." And then later on, it's like "See the blood pouring from my yeah. mouth, dripping down my chin." And it's like those <laughs> those words are not redacted. So it's like, what's that about? Like who well, who is figuring this out? As you know, who's making these these and connections? Is it, and I this is this is me getting conspiratorial. But is it Theo with that transcript later blacking out words in order to like show clues through what's being said? You know, in that other words, like it seems to be right. I think like it's not being redacted t- so much as like he's finding out that like every seventh word means something. And, you know, it's that kind of code. Um, what do you think of Theo, by the way? We didn't talk about him, really, because he's he's both our avatar into this world, but he's also a very interesting and he's the detective. He's sort of the protagonist. Yeah. But then he gets pulled further and further in. But there seems to be some other th- like he's not an atheist. He's not some like, you know, he's not like uh, just like, I don't believe any of this nonsense. He, he there's yeah. something else going on with him. He believes in something well, early, early on. He's in his office and he brings out like a a, a cup of bones, like a like divination well, bones. And he throws that them we on the table. discover is his grandfather's left hand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. Because his grandmother practiced voodoo. Um, and I, oh, I loved that, uh, because actually when he first pulled him out, I was like, oh man, this is going to be goofy where it's like, there's some, you know, he, there's some, uh, uh, occult investigator, you know, investigating the occult. But then when we find out like how he believes it, at least in yeah. volume one, I know from your notes that, um, you know, there's at least a big, yeah, he gets sucked in later. Um, and I, I don't know it, it, that is almost like a, a, a trope kind of thing. But, uh, so far I'm liking it. Like I'm along for the ride. He's uh, really interesting. Like he reminds me a lot of, um, like I almost imagine Jeffrey Wright, the actor playing him in the movie oh. version. Of and it's also, do you ever see Syriana? That, um, no, I George didn't. Clooney I movie from no. freaking great movie. But Jeffrey Wright is also in that in a similar kind of role. Like he's not a detective mm. so much, but he's kind of, he's kind of this, you know, um, you know, sort of standard issue, like lawyer guy who's having to go do this, do this work amongst these like, you know, powerful people doing shitty things. And he's, he kind of gets wrapped up in it and it's just has a similar kind of vibe. So I'm just like, the more, the more I'm spend time with Theo, the more I'm like, what is his deal? I just hope it doesn't, the whole thing doesn't end with him becoming like the new man or something. Like, I hope he's right, right, right. You know, I hope he either has some crucial part to play in bringing this down or at least, you know, he doesn't get it doesn't end with him giving in. Although volume two does sort of suggest that um, before we talk about the art, because we haven't touched on the art yet. And I want to spend some time on that. Yeah. I want to cover a few. Holy shit. There's a lot of holy shit moments in the series. Yeah. Um, what was what are a few of yours? And I'll do a few of mine. Oh, man. Um, what? <laughs> so. Uh, picking up on that scene after the transcript, when Theo speaks with Victor and Victor, I, I don't know how else to put this, casts the spell on his attorney. Oh, and yeah. And then basically tells his attorney to start banging his head on the table until I tell you to stop. That, I was like, what is going on? And I, I think for, for Theo, that's the moment of like, oh, I buy in now. You mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Like, this was all a bunch of crazy stuff that that he was interested in just because of his background. But all of a sudden that happens. And it's like, no, this is real. This really works. You know, I didn't know if my grandmother's magic worked, but this worked. Yeah. Um, I, 
I would say that, that you know, and to, to, I'll just limit mine to two. I, to me, the ending of volume one is great because I, we don't really know where the um, Gregoria character, like how she's going to fit into the world. Um, I really love the way she's illustrated through all that. Like it's there's always this sort of like the cameras like below her chin, you know, sort of like she's haughty, you know, and keeping yeah. her head up um, angled up. And she has the familiar with her. Um and then at the funeral, when she gets up and it's like, get out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That part, I just, I thought was so delicious. Like, oh my God, what is this? Um, some of the holy shit moments, I, sorry, I don't want to uh, no, take away ahead. from you, but when we discover that there is actual, like, that kid's diary, is that Wynn's diary? Yeah. When he's like, and then I ate, they all sat, observed as I ate his heart. And I went, wait, that that's a literal thing, isn't it? And yeah, that was a pretty holy shit moment. Uh, yeah. What are yours? Um, you know, Rhea, Rhea in general is just a cool character. Like they, they talk about her, they get, they build her up a little bit before she finally appears. And then when she appears, she does not disappoint. Like she absolutely, <laughs> right. she is, she is the one in control and she's so interesting and cool. And she's, she, unlike Victor, she never, she never like, uh, loses her her cool she never like freaks out and starts screaming at everybody and she's just like yeah what do you think she's just she's she's very disarming that way it's almost like right. you can almost imagine emma thompson playing that you know it's something you know, in a younger younger emma thompson like 20 20 years ago or something like that i think the my biggest holy shit moment which you don't know about sadly but i'm gonna say <laughs> it anyway is the meeting at the fed in volume two with maman yeah. where uh theo and dr gatus Dr. Gatiss takes him there and the Fed is sort of like ground zero for all this stuff. They go into the lobby and the receptionist, you know, asks, you know, like, oh, you know, are you here here to see somebody? And the uh, Dr. Gatiss you know, pays with these ancient um either Sumerian or Aramaic coins. I forget which it is. I think oh, Aramaic. Um, gives them these two coins and you know, pays their passageway and she leads them down this, you know, infinitely dark you know steps into the the bowels of the fed underground which is this satanic temple essentially and sitting in there in a freaking business suit is maman and he's got um it's kind of like lord of the rings he doesn't speak he only speaks in that sort of weird symbols yeah talk you know but he's got like a kind of a his own familiar that that speaks for him or translates for him and then he's got two of those white actual familiars in front of him just kind of standing guard and theo and dr gatus confront him and they ask, you know, Dr. Gatiss, you know, they basically ask a question and it's like, who killed Daniel Rothschild? And he says, you know, he says who it is. And then Dr. Gatiss pulls this shit where he's like, I need to know, you know, they're like, oh, you've asked your question, get the fuck out of here. And Dr. Gatiss is like, I have more questions. They're like, no, get out of here before we take your tongue off. He's like, I will pay the ultimate price. And they're like, okay, you get two questions. And so Dr. Gatiss asks two questions. He goes, why, why are you doing what you're doing? And Mammon answers that. And then he goes, name every stock market crash you've caused. And he, and Mammon does not answer. He's like, I'll repeat again, name every stock market crash you've caused. And he lists them all off, but he doesn't list 1987. And Dr. Gatiss oh. is like, remember that Theo, while they're literally dragging him away to basically just you know, eat him and kill him. Like he's like, remember this Theo, remember what you heard. And so Theo leaves knowing that information, which takes me to my second holy shit moment, which <laughs> is he goes and confronts Gregoria in her gigantic palatial office. And they have this conversation. He's like, you know, look, I, I found out who killed Daniel, but that's not the point of this, is it? She's like, not really. And she's like, what do you want? He's like, I want in. 
he basically says, I want to be part of this whole thing. Yeah. And it's like, oh, no. That made me just really go, is there any hero here? Is anybody mm, a good guy? Mm. Until my third holy shit moment, which is the epilogue, where we see finally Win Ackerman um, hiding out in Argentina for some reason. And he's he's going to finally enter the fray again. And he's got, seems to be like incredibly powerful. Like he seems to be like the, the, um, the legion of this whole thing. So we'll see. Huh. We'll see where that goes. But yeah. just like the the kind of one, two, three moment of like they they meet Mammon, like that's not saved for the very, very end. Like that just happens. And it's like this right. it is, dude, it read it just for that. It is it is the most bonkers thing in comics I think I've ever seen. It's just like I was almost <laughs> I almost wanted to like throw the book down and like run away. I was like, what the hell is going on? This is I don't know if I should be looking at this. Um but yeah, it's just <laughs> The whole, I mean, and yours is great, but there's, I mean, there's plenty of holy shit moments. If you, oh, yeah. if you've got one out there, please comment on Instagram or let us know like what, what you thought a holy shit moment was. Cause there's so many to, to celebrate. Abigail, uh, eating when, when Rhea sees Abigail eating her father. Oh yeah. my God. That was, yeah. that was one where I like literally like turn the page back. Like, you know. <laughs> I got like I got to open that door again. <laughs> There's a scene. I'll, 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 I'll tease this too. There's a scene in volume two, where Abigail and Victor finally have it out. They're like they finally have a come to Jesus meeting, and they um mm. there is a basically they have to have like a a, a wizards duel essentially. But she chooses, <laughs> uh, Rhea chooses Abigail as her as her champion, and Victor just he he represents himself, and they have this like ridiculous satanic like mind meld battle thing that ends very very graphically i won't say anything more um just because i want you to i want you to be as shocked as i was sure. jesus christ um they just they do not hold back which takes us to the art because um tom Cark, uh cocker i was like uh, uh coker um tim coker just nails every single one of these panels like it's he captures the noir spirit completely perfectly. The color palettes are these muted blues and reds and yellows that are just they he uses the color to really sort of establish a, a sense of place, you know, as they cut from scene to scene or as the as the tone changes. Um, they really use color well. Um, and I, I picked that up. I, I noticed that even more reading through volume one again and then obviously reading volume two. It's just pardon me, they're Tom is really just he he really gets this story and has a clean idea in his head of what it should look like. Um, and, you know, this was one of those like I, I mentioned when talking about Rhea that, the, I, you know, I mentioned it in a cinematography term of like the camera angle. Yeah, I got that throughout this whole thing. Oh, like 100%. there's just panels where it's like uh, and especially in the printed edition. So I will say this is a, a really cool thing about it is like as you're scanning from panel to panel. I mean, just I know so many comics do this, but this is just exceptional where it, it feels like a camera cutting in a scene, not, not, not just different angles. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it, and it's really beautifully done. Um, and I, I love a lot where we're, we're getting a really, uh, we're getting that noir feeling on the faces, but we're not getting the individual features, but I still feel like I know what all of the characters look like. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where like there's so many times where you don't even see Theo's eyes like they're just shrouded like in, you know, his brows shadow. And then once the eyes open, it's like, oh, you know, <laughs> whoa, there's like a moment of like he's, you know, he popped his eyes open to stare at something or whatever. And the same with uh, other detectives and especially Victor. It's like, you know, the face is so wrapped in shadow. 
The um the cinematography yeah the cinema I say this a lot about books and I, I kind of sound like a broken record but of of all the series I love this one is definitely in the top three or four of just feeling like it's almost storyboards for a movie that were just that were beautifully yeah. drawn like and it feels like a Brian De Palma movie like the angles you talked about and just like a lot of the symmetry but just um Tom really. Lee, he likes drawing spaces so a lot of the offices and the oh, you know, yeah. places there like they just feel very big and and you know spacious and he likes giving and you know all the off, a lot of the offices feel like um um like very palatial almost like temples yeah. you know like especially at the end at the very end of, it, of volume two when Theo goes to confront Rhea and he's walking up and it's, it's, it's literally like he's walking up the steps to a temple and she's like at the altar at her desk and it just has this very, you know, Odessa steps kind of feel to it. Um, which is just, in, it, you know, it's, uh, there's another, uh, I'm going to spoil too much for you, but there's another panel where Victor is having his sort of his, uh, his duel with Rhea. He strips himself naked and he's standing mm. there, you know, and he's in there. It, it's it's kind of like this um, Dutch tilt shot of him standing there, and he literally ha he says the words, "I am the vengeance of Irina uh, Kozlov," and he's like, you know, he's got his hands on his hips, and his like, you know, his dick is sitting there, you know, hanging out. But it's just it's it's literally just like showing the physicality of arrogance and power. Like here's this <laughs> fat, tattooed, bloody guy just standing there, going, you know, you don't tell me, I'll tell you, and it's just the the symbolism of that. You know, it's yeah, it's very graphic, and yeah, it's very, you know, this is not for kids. But my God, like Tom Cocker, uh, Coker really understands how to imbue these panels. You, you get so much subtext. That's really what I'm getting at. Like you well, get so much subtext from like the way the people are drawn and how they're the, the positions they hold and the physicality of their bodies. Like he really likes drawing bodies. It's really interesting. Oh yeah, yeah. I was gonna say that that almost sounds like a um a flashback to the very first issue where I think it's Rothschild kills the first Ackerman. Yeah. 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 yeah and the, and his body is just naked and surrounded in the circle of blood with all the symbols on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. And it, there's definitely like, Oh yeah, he's, there's a, a big physical body in this picture, you know? Uh, man, that's just, <laughs> you mentioned Brian De Palma, the movie that kept running through my head, which I confess, I do not recall very well at all. Um, was Angel Heart though, with oh, uh, Mickey Rourke and Lisa Bonet, uh, where I believe Robert De Niro is the actual literal devil in it, um, and it it just but it had that you know it's uh, Rourke private investigator goes to New Orleans and that feel of like oh this there's some actual witchcraft going on here you know yeah. with within a um, he's a private investigator with that noir like detective thriller kind of thing so. Um, yeah, but that's, it's absolutely, uh, uh, cinematic in that aspect. The only thing that I don't think, you know, the, the, in one of the great ways that, uh, Hickman utilizes the medium of the comic book is all that miscellaneous stuff that we've talked about, which I just think there is no way to translate that to film. Yeah. You know, you can't do the transcript with the blackouts on it. Um, certainly not in, I mean, there's like. I don't know, four to eight pages of that. <laughs> like it's pretty dense, you know? Um, and a lot of the, you know, the things like the family trees and stuff, it, it would just be really hard to translate that in. And then you're missing part of the story if you're not seeing all that. So, I mean, this is a dense book. That's a great point. Like I often do wonder like if could, you know, should this be turned into a, a TV show or a movie, you know, a classic example is postal, which 
is a great graphic novel, but Jesus, that is a TV show first and foremost. Like it is a, it looks like a great TV show. This, as cinematic as it looks, I agree. I don't think it should ever be turned into anything. I think it would it would fail as as a film or as a as a TV series. I think another another Netflix series that just came out. This reminds me a lot of is um a uh, a Dutch co-production called Aries. Um, oh. it's a it's a eight part miniseries or limited series, I should say, that uh, deals a lot of the same themes, you know, secret societies and the occult and, and um, you know, manipulation and you know, all these things, kinds of things. But it, I kept watching that going, I love this, but this would actually work better as a graphic novel. Like, I just, oh, I, right. it, it feels like they could have done more, they could have had more, you know, nuance and more context and subtext that they had done it that way. So it's, it's kind of interesting mm. coming from the vision, you know, the filmed medium and thinking, Oh, this would work better as a book. This one I would, I'm glad is a book and I don't think I ever want to see it. If, if I ever hear like, Oh, they're adapting black Monday murders. I'd be like, yeah, that's almost, I, that'd be very tough. Although, you know, they pulled off Watchmen. So who knows? Maybe they could. Well, maybe they and we keep getting teased with East to West, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, and, uh, you know, I wonder if, if, uh, yeah, it's, it's weird, but, but I do feel like, uh, you know, what, one thing we talk about on, on our podcast all the time is like the, uh, what do you want to call it? Like the essentialism of the comic art, you know, like, is this story, does it have to be told in a comic book? Is that the perfect medium for it? And this really feels like it to me as much as dense as the, uh, writing was. And as much as I felt at times, like I was reading a novel, I'd loved reading a big chunky paragraph and then glancing over and seeing the face of the person speaking it yeah. and, you know, getting that camera angle on them and like the expression on their face, which was just so well done. I mean, I, and, and in a really interesting thing is I, uh, um, love Nick Dragata's art in East of West, but I don't think he would have worked for this book, you mm -hmm. know? No, and, not at all. And it's it is very interesting to me to to get to that point where it's like, oh, it's the same author, but I don't really know that I, you know, would match them up for this. And that's oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like that's maybe, you know, image comics or indie, you know, not big two kind of comics particular, although it just popped in my head like I really love Jeff Loeb and um, Tim Sale. And I don't really want to read either of them <laughs> when the other's not involved. Well, that's, I mean, it's, it's a lot like, like, uh, the music business in the seventies, sixties or seventies, you'd have all these, you know, you'd have an artist who'd be like, yeah, you know, I'm Chris Hillman. I'm going to be with the flying burrito bullets. Hey, I'm going to come over here and do a solo album. Hey, I'm going to come over here and co collaborate with uh, Crosby stills and right, Nash. Hey, I'm right. gonna, it's just like, you get, you get all of this cross collaboration and nobody's like you know, super duper precious about that. And it's like, comics are, are comics are really you know, what music was in the 60s and 70s in terms of the, the pure, just creative spirit and the, you know, the the level of ideas and the level of collaboration. That's what comics are now. And it's just, you know, even to the point where like you walk into a great comic shop, it feels like a record store it would have in the 70s. Yeah, for it's sure. It's just got that same thing. So I love the fact that Hickman's like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to form a band with Tom Coker for a, a while and then yeah, do a project exactly. with him. And then, yeah, no, Dragata's amazing. But yeah, Dragata's aesthetic would not serve this story at all. Um at all. So I'm glad he, I'm glad he found Tom Cocker or Coker. The other, I mean, conversely, I do not like the art on Manhattan projects. And so I'm yeah. kind of like, I wish, you know, and so a lot of people do, I just doesn't, doesn't really just something about it's off putting to me. And so it would be interesting to see if, 
if anybody if anybody else guest artists on Manhattan projects if he ever brings it back or does like a you know a second run of it or something. Um, final question as we wrap up: How would you rate this series on a scale of one to ten, with one being "Oh Jesus, no," and ten being "This is sitting on my shelf forever and ever." Uh, it's really high up there. I might give it a seven or eight. Um, and the only thing holding back is that it, uh, you know, we talk a lot about series where you you feel like you need it to wrap up, you know. Um, and this more than East of West, do I want to see wrapped up? <laughs> yeah. Not, <laughs> and not drag out. Yeah. And I, I, I'm so I'm very curious about volume two and three is not even on the schedule as far as I understand. No, they, he paused probably to work on X-Men. So oh, they, yeah, uh, yeah, good point. He's uh, now that East of West is done and X-Men is kind of in maintenance mode. Um, I'm wondering <laughs> if he's if he comes back to this soon because the last issue to come out was issue eight in February of 2018. So it's been a God, it's been two years. That is crazy mm. to consider. Yeah. Um, I never thought it would have been that long. So yeah, Black Monday uh, number eight came out in 2018. Volume two came out in April of 18, and so we've been sort of you know waiting until then. So my guess is they'll return, but I hope the time in between. Seems like a lot of great ideas he used in X-Men. So I'm curious yeah. what he has planned for this. But I, I'm with you. Well, I would say this is about a 7, seven to 7.5 in my... I'll say 7.5. Yeah. Um, only because he hasn't degree. finished it. And if he finishes it like on a high note in three volumes, this will be this will easily go up to a 9 for me. Um, well, maybe even a 10. I don't know. And, and that you, you uh, uh, guessed at my last question, which was, like, do you think this could be wrapped up in the third volume? And is that what you would want to see? I it absolutely could, and I do. But if he can convince me that four is necessary, I'll take him up on that. But over four, you're going to get a little sketched out. Four is <laughs> four would be way it, five, anything past four would. I mean, four would be stretching it. But I think I could see, I could see logic in doing it. But anything past that is no, no. I mean, they're so thick, like you said, they're so thick. There's so much opportunity, but right now given kind of what we've seen, especially after volume two, I mean, three would seem very archetypal. You know, you'd have three volumes, three yeah. acts, and that the third act could really, I think, bring a lot of shocks and surprises, but 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 not dwell on things too long where you're just like, oh, just get it over with. Yeah. I think, um, you know, and uh, adding on to the, like, the thickness issue of this. Um, I was surprised to learn that this volume one is so huge that image did not do their normal nine 99 volume. No, one not is at all. 1999. Yeah. It's big. Yeah. So that, that was one reason I was like really excited to find it, uh, in a used bookstore for 10 bucks. Yeah. That's know? great. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I think we should wrap it there. If you've been listening along, uh, we'd love to hear what you think about the the book. So find our Instagram post or send us a private message. Let us know. We'll, we'll if you know if you got if you have a good take, we'll try to uh, shout you out on the podcast. Um, I know a couple people, uh, you know, shouted out when they were we posted our 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 book club pick. A bunch of people said, "Oh, that's interesting. I can't believe you're reading that." So um, definitely let us know. We'll we'll give you a, a shout on a future episode. And uh, Todd, where can they find? other episodes sure. other uh you can find episode number 64 and all 130 something episodes of the show at oh, panelism.inc that is a real website address we are on instagram at panelism.inc and we are also freely downloadable on all of your favorite podcast apps fantastic well <laughs> 
Thank you, sir. It's been a great uh, kind of 2020 first issue of our book club. Um, we're still talking about what the February book will be, so we'll be we'll announce that soon. Um, we'll probably be very different from Black Monday Murders, so <laughs> stand by for that. But uh, appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Happy reading, and we'll we'll catch you all again next week. Yes. <laughs>